I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class, but I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me now as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy, and I'm a quilter, and welcome to episode 127, in which I talk with Jane Dunnewald. And I am recording this part of this episode on Monday, June 17th. I think it's the 17th anyway, 2013. But the original conversation with Jane has been recorded a few weeks earlier. Uh, These last few weeks, I've been super busy with work every other year this being one of those every other years, June and July are just intense uh, months for me with work because we have several national events kind of all back to back. Um, and so I've just not been able to get out a podcast with a Sandy update. Uh, first of all, not much Sandy update to talk about <laughs> because of said work um, hours, working late, or even if I'm not working late, I'm so stinking fried by the end of the day, I don't want to talk to anybody, wouldn't be too entertaining as a podcaster. Um, but that's okay. I'm hoping by the time that I do have the time and energy to put out a Sandy Update podcast, I will actually have a Sandy Update to give. <laughs> but you know what? One of the things I really appreciate in times like these I love that I can let someone else do the heavy lifting. Translated, that means I get to offer you another fantastic interview. In this episode, as I said when I announced the title to this episode, I talk with Jane Dunnewald. Jane is a fiber artist, author, writer, and teacher. Jane teaches a craftsy class named The Art of Cloth Dyeing, and if you're one of my regular listeners, you know what the results of me taking that class have been, but I will leave those details for another podcast episode, because yes, you know that I will be talking about hand dyeing again in the future. In any case, I really loved having this conversation with Jane. I loved being able to listen to it again as I edited it for posting, and I loved the fact that I didn't have to do a whole lot of editing either. Um, You know that question that floats around on the internet about when you get to heaven, who would you most like to have dinner with? Well, two things. One, I've decided I don't want to wait until I get to heaven. I want to have dinner with all of these folks that I've been interviewing now. I would love to be able to talk to Jane for hours about things that we only scratch the surface with on this episode. What is art? What is surface design? How do surface design techniques inform us regardless of what style of quilting we do? What are the connections between spirituality and quilting? How do we learn who we are and express who we are through what we create? This was really blow-your-mind kind of stuff. So without further ado, I'm going to let your mind be blown too. Let's go now to my conversation with Jane. I really can't wait to hear what you think about what you hear, so please be part of this conversation as well by leaving your comments. Here we go. Here's the conversation. Okay, today I am talking with Jane Dunnewald, who I met more or less through Craftsy. Um, Jane, can you talk a little bit first about your own journey into how you got to where you are now? Why, sure, Sandy. I was uh, the oldest of four daughters. I was headed to uh, graduate school to become a pastor, and I got cold feet. And I spent a summer waiting tables and saving money in order to go and take an embroidery class with Erica Wilson, who was at that time this huge sensation 
um, it, it helping to bring needlework back into the the forefront of of uh, craft sorts of applications. <clears throat> and I went and took a, a ten day class with her on Nantucket Island, and I was so totally jazzed by the stitching that I I never looked back. And about six months later, I moved to San Antonio, Texas, where there was a wonderful place called the Southwest School. At that time, it was called the Craft Center. And I enrolled in classes that were mainly stitchery at that point, at that kind of an independent art school. And I kept waiting tables and taking classes like crazy. I was just so hooked on all of it. Of course, it wasn't the path that my parents wanted me to be on, so there was some dissension there. But I, I sort of wound my way through those classes. And after I'd been taking classes there a couple of years, um, they had an opening for an artist in residence. And I applied and talked my way into it. So then I was in this wonderful position where, at that time, they had a visiting artist program where all of these major names, of, and this is in the early 80s, people all over the country who were really making a name for themselves with stitchery and textile arts as art for one of the first times. Um, they all came to the school, and I was their assistant. I ran around and did all the grunt work. But I was exposed to these brilliant, wonderful people and their ideas. And that was kind of how I got started, and I just haven't ever looked back. Had you had any sort of formal art training before you went into this, <clears throat> or was this how you got into the art world? No. Um, I, if I can say anything honestly about myself, I'm a quick study, and I'm diligent. And I have no formal art training, which I think makes me a better teacher in some ways, because I know what it's like to feel behind the curve mm. when it comes to um, not having that kind of training. But I, I believe that anyone who sets their mind to it and, and, and does, you know, I didn't teach myself everything. I signed up for independent workshops, and so that's one of the, the reasons I'm such a big proponent of that system. If something like Craftsy had existed then, I would have been on the computer <laughs> until my hands bled. You know? <laughs> right. And it didn't exist, so I went to books, and I, went, I was fortunate to be in this environment where I was, was learning from other people. But um, most of what I know, I'm, I taught myself, or I discovered because I found that being in the studio was one of the things that was absolutely satisfying and where I was, you know, I, it took me a long time to admit what a control freak I really am. <laughs> I mean, I had to hit 50 before I was willing to admit that. But the fact is that in the studio, even when things don't go your way, you, you have only yourself to consider in the equation. And I really liked that. Hmm. Now, how did you move from the stitchery world then into the um, surface design that you do, the art quilting, that kind of transition? Mm -hmm. The downside, and it isn't really, it isn't really the downside. People hear this and they think what a terrible thing it is. Um, I, I was married to a chef. We had a restaurant. The bottom fell out of the oil industry in Texas in the mid-'80s. Um, we experienced some really, really tough personal times, and it led to a divorce and a bankruptcy. <clears throat> and at that point, I can remember sitting in the shower, water pouring over my head, thinking, okay, you've been doing what other people wanted you to do for 36 years, because that's how old I was when this was happening, and it has not worked. And there was a book at that time called Follow Your Heart or something about do what you love and the money will follow, something along those lines. 
And I'm not a really woo-woo person, but I can say that that has proved to be true for me. And so I, I started scouting around. I had this nice connection to this, this um, independent art school. And I was very aware of surface design. The Surface Design Association had just come onto my radar, and printing, and dyeing, and using fabric paints was still a relatively new thing. But I went down to this school, sort of screwed up my courage, and went to the director of the school and started badgering him to start a surface design program and kept trying to convince him that I was the best person to do it. And I, 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 I kid about it now, but really I wore him down. He was so sick of listening to me every week that finally he gave me a very small space that was basically a storeroom. And he said, okay, fine. I want classes to start there when the summer semester begins, and you better get it together. So I came home, and I started learning. I, I taught myself as I went along, and then I realized one of the critical things that has led to my own success, and I think to, um, to the appeal of, of classes like what I teach, which is there is always room to learn from other people in the class. And if you're the teacher in the situation I was in there, I really had to sublimate my own ego because I needed to know what other people knew. And yeah, I put a little spin on it saying, oh, everybody, let's just share ideas. We're all, we're all here together. Share what you know, and, and we'll all, all boats will rise. And little did the people in the classroom know sometimes how, how inexperienced I was, but I made every effort to, to um, cram. I mean, it was, it was it, th that classic college thing where you cram the night before the test. I would cram all week before I was teaching a particular thing, and then I would go in and I would know. I would know about it, and I would invite other people to share what they knew. And little did I realize when that was happening that it set the tone for this department, which eventually became the surface design department at this school where people came because they knew what a welcoming environment it was. So I can't say that I did it on purpose, but it turned into a beautiful project where lots of people were willing to contribute ideas, and that's really what made it a success. <laughs> you know, I was reminded of the, the general proverb that the best way to learn something is to teach it. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that's basically yeah, what that's you did. That's true. That's <laughs> absolutely true. It's true. Uh, all right, so so let's move into you now have um, well let's talk about first of all the way I have experienced you is through Craftsy. Can you so can you talk a little bit about your Craftsy class? Sure. Uh, they approached me sometime early last summer, and were interested in a dyeing class. I I have a lot of special interests. Dyeing is one thing that I have have tried to learn to do really well and to figure out and. So um, so basically, it's a dye class that covers immersion dyeing, which um, just for those listeners who might not be clear on, on the differences, the dye is very versatile. We're using fiber-reactive MX dyes in the class that I teach. And th those dyes can either be mixed into a solution, and you can put the fabric in the dye, and then we're calling it an immersion dye bath. Or you can mix a thickener into the dye, and you can use it kind of the way we would use paint. and, and and apply it with brushes and through silk screens. This particular class, because it's such a huge field, how you, all the different ways that there are to use dye, I consider this sort of part one. And in part one, we talk about all the, we talk a lot about chemistry. I try not to make it scary, but I do think that all of these chemical processes deserve a certain amount of healthy respect. Because, <coughs> pardon me, the last thing I want is for someone to not understand 
that they're dealing with chemistry and they are dealing with chemicals and that there is always some risk, although it's, very, it's not very important or major with these dyes, there's always a risk that you can do something wrong and it can make you sick. So we talk about that and then we talk about all the ways to mix up the dyes and how to pattern fabric using various sorts of, of home uh, stuff that you find around the house in order to tie it up inside bundles and immerse it in this dye bath. And the results are, they're always fantastic. I, I liken it to opening a present on your birthday when you don't really know what's in the box, but you pour the water off the dye and you unfold these bundles. And it, it's just very, very exciting. I never tire of it. I um I do have you to blame for a large portion of my oh, basement oh. now <laughs> having been yeah, it's, it's like given a over. Teacher, really. I keep reeling people in and I, I I don't apologize for that at all. I'm glad I've got you hooked. I am definitely hooked. I'm I'm pretty much all in at this point. And and I think what appeals to me about um dyeing and a lot of these surface techniques, well mostly dyeing, is it's a wonderful combination of science and art. Yes, it is. I love that combination. And it's also a combination of control and yet serendipity at the same time because there's mm -hmm. certain things you can't control, you know, and you just mm -hmm. kind of see what happens. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's true. that's the Craftsy class. You also have uh, two books, one of which is maybe out of print at this point. Is the earlier one out of print now? No, actually, I considered a, a huge delight that Complex Cloth, which was written in 19, was published in 1996 and has been available since 1996, went briefly out of print. I'm not sure when it was. It might have been around uh, 2002 or three. Went out of print briefly, and then there was so much interest in it, they brought it back. Mm. So, you know, I didn't go into the ministry, but I have experienced being raised from the dead. <laughs> And I couldn't be happier. Um, and then, you know, one thing I love is that the, the, the harder you work and the more you pay attention, the more there is to, to understand and learn. And that's true of all of the processes that I've used in my, in my own experience with, with textiles and printing. And so Art Cloth, which was published by Interweave in 2010, has a lot of that early information in it, but it has that information and then 10 times more in terms of everything I learned after Complex Cloth. You know, books are funny entities. They stop time. You send it off to the publisher, and you did the best job you could possibly do at that point in time, but you, you're already learning something new the day you put it in the mail. And so I think the Internet helps overcome that to some extent, and when you teach, I'm a freelancer, that's how I make my living. So I'm on the road, I'm teaching all the time, and that gives me the opportunity to keep freshening things up. I guess I, we, we, now that the GPSs are so popular, I, I think of it as recalculating. You know, we're always recalculating based on the new information that we have. And so Art Cloth is actually a companion to the Complex Cloth book because it represents all of the recalculations and the added knowledge that I've acquired going over the roads endlessly ever since Complex Cloth was, was published. Hmm. I do own Art Cloth, and it's one of these things that I keep pulling off my shelf and just immersing myself in it again to get Thank ideas you. for the next time I sit down. I really enjoy that. Thank um, you very much. So you've already mentioned that you do teach out on the road. You also have a studio in San Antonio. Do you hold classes there as well? Well, I do, and maybe I'm crazy. At this point, a lot of people are winding their careers down, 
and I'm not. I'm ramping mine up, and in the spirit of that, a year ago, actually about 15 months ago, I bought a, a, an old farmhouse very close to downtown San Antonio. It was built in 1890, and it's on a half acre, and I've just finished, I mean, within, I'm not even moved in yet. I have this beautiful 1,200-square-foot wet studio, which is my dream come true, with 400 feet of outdoor deck and an outdoor restaurant, nine-foot restaurant sink, and the classes are not yet scheduled for that space, but the next step, once I, I move out of the, the older building that I've been in for 12 years and get, get fully established in that new studio, the goal then is to, is to get some classes on the, on the website and to encourage people to come here because these are the kinds of classes that really require, you can teach it anywhere. I taught one time uh, um, at a Silomar, which is a, a, a really venerated old quilt um, conference that people go to in the spring, and I loved working for them. But I'd have 20 people in a room where one time all the plumbing shut down, and we were literally rinsing out the dyed fabric in toilets we had cleaned. And that was the only water source we had. And you can't believe, you probably can. It's very nerve-wracking to work under those circumstances. <laughs> and people don't usually understand that you ha the more water you have and the more space you have, the happier everybody is. Mm -hmm. And I love it when everybody's really, really happy. So this is a studio where I'll never have more than 10 people in a class. I can keep the cost down. I don't have to do what they do in some settings where, frankly, guilds, Guilds have a bottom line, and so they have to put 20 people in a class, but I don't. And so I have this wonderful new studio with tons of water and tons of space and a kitchen so we can make our own lunches, and I can just hardly wait to get people um, engaged in coming here because it'll be a really good place to do all these things and also feel the, the beauty and the warmth of San Antonio, which is an incredible city. So uh, all I have to do is haunt your website for the next year and <laughs> pay yeah, attention. Right in the next year, I'll send you a personal invitation <laughs> as soon as we're up and going. Um, all right, you have this wonderful, wonderful essay on your website. I believe I found it under tutorials about art cloth. And in yeah. one of the sentences in there is cloth should be approached as a work of art. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by art cloth, complex cloth, surface design, the, those terms? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, surface design is a funny term. You know, I'm president of the Surface Design Association, which has over 4,000 members all over the world. And we still have trouble defining exactly what surface design is. I think as it was originally conceived, it was a fairly narrow uh, definition, and it, it had to do specifically with dyeing and printing on fabric. But we now know that really anything could be surface design. I just paid guys to hand paint one of the walls of my new studio with graffiti. So that's surface design. And anyone who really admires glazes on pottery knows that's surface design. And so in a way, surface design is this gorgeous, all-inclusive field. But my little neck of the woods is, is definitely a preference for the processes that, that I can apply to cloth because as a woman and as someone who grew up with, with um, mothers and grandmothers who were knitters and who were embroiderers, and my mother, you know, never worked outside the home when we were growing up, but she made all our clothes. That's four of us, my, my three sisters and myself. And so there was this wonderful creative energy around that 
And I, I, I love the fact that cloth is so absolutely elemental that, that we all have some reference to it. But it's, it's funny. It's a paradox, isn't it, Sandy? Because it is so elemental, there is, sometimes it's dismissed. And so when I started working, I woke up one, before complex cloth was ever an idea in a publisher's mind, I woke up at 4 in the morning, which is when I get my best brainstorms. And those two words had just popped into my head, complex cloth. And I thought, whoa, I, I get this. I know how to dye, and I know how to stamp, and I know how to stencil. It had never occurred to me that I could put all those things together on one piece of fabric. So that was really the impulse behind the book, the first book, and that has been the trajectory that I've been on with my work and with the encouragement that I offer my, my gorgeous, wonderful students because I have seen with my eyes work on fabric that could be stretched but does not have to be stretched, that could hang free, that is as finely conceived, is as conceptual a piece of art as anything in any museum anywhere. And so that in my mind originally was complex cloth, but then I have a friend in Marie Therese Wisnowski in Australia said to me one time when I was teaching there, Jane, everything is art cloth. Fiber art is kind of an old term and textile art sometimes brings down the curtain with people. They don't really understand what that is in the same way that people who aren't familiar with art quilts don't understand that this is not something for the bed. It's a form, but it's a form that has been co-opted by artists to create incredible works of art. And so when I use the term art cloth now, I'm thinking of it as a very general term that encompasses everything that's being done, done in some way to make art that incorporates all of the processes that are possible when it comes to coloring cloth. And it strikes me, and I remember when I first started experimenting in hand dyeing and I'd, I'd bring some stuff in for show and tell in my guild, people would always say, what are you going to do with it? Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and what I'm struck by is <laughs> you don't always do something with it. You know, kind of the, the purpose may just be the cloth itself, not necessarily what that cloth then might come, become. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, I wonder if anyone ever asked Picasso, what are you going to do with it? You know, <laughs> you know? Or, or any artist. Right. And I understand where that comes from, but that's the perfect example of, of, of someone not thinking big enough mm. and how we have to be willing to be out there on the edge of thinking bigger. And frankly, there, there are pieces of fabric that are made that will become upholstery, that will become clothing. I think of those as fine craft applications most of the time. And I, I began to think of this in this way. You go to an art fair... You go into somebody's booth, let's say they're a painter. Frequently they have a bin there that's filled with drawings that aren't the same price as their larger paintings which are occupying the wall space, but they're still selling them. And they're selling them without any apologies as sketches or as something that preceded the larger vision of their paintings. And so what I think of is that we're all capable of doing all of this. We're grown-ups. And so I can make fabric that I sell to somebody and they can use it for upholstery if that's or pillows if that's what they want to do. And I don't really have any illusions about that being fine art, but I can also go into the studio and work on fabric and create something that no one would ever even think of cutting up. 
that could hang on a wall in someone's home, and anyone who walked in would be blown away by the beauty of it and would, would think of it as art. And so I think that's where we just have to be willing to demonstrate. That's what I'm doing all the time. I'm mentoring people with that idea, and I'm explaining that concept so that we can all kind of blow up a lot bigger how we think about what fabric is capable of being. Hmm. I'm, I'm trying <laughs> You just kind of blew my I'm mind, sorry. but I'll move I'm on. Not a soapbox too much. <laughs> no, I've, I've I've got too many thoughts in my head at one time. Um, <laughs> let's let's pull it back then a little sure. bit and go back to kind of going almost backwards a little bit. That that people when they hear things like art cloth or complex cloth or surface design, they tend to automatically think art quilting. Do you see a benefit to someone who might self-identify as a traditional or a modern quilter in knowing these techniques and being able to um, have some adeptness at these same techniques? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think one of the most exciting um, new um, occurrence isn't really the word, but that'll do for now. I think this, the, that the modern quilt movement is a really exciting way of, of generating interest in, in quilt making in a, in a direction that, that may feel new to them. Maybe it's not quite as new. It doesn't really matter, though, does it? Their interest in big, bold colors and refined shapes, I just love this. I love the fact that the modern quilt uh, convention in Austin sold out and that it was it was packed with people who just love this because all of that is a really good sign. Okay, so my agenda, though, is to sit and wait until people who are making what, who are part of the modern quilt movement, they will eventually, I think, here, here's the bottom line. I think that when you're working on something creative, you begin where you begin, and frequently it's with somebody else's uh, stencils or it's with somebody else's patterned fabric, and that the more you move into your process, the more you wish that you could be in control of every single part of it. And so I don't doubt that anyone who is engaged by the modern quilt movement will eventually feel that they would like to push a little further than where they are right now, and then the dyeing and the printing will cycle around again. And when it does, then people like me who have all of this experience will be there eager to share, share the knowledge. And I think, because I think I've watched that happen in the art quilt movement, you know, there's a very, very, very fine line, I think, between the two, but, but that's okay. We all have to carve out our, our space, our identity. But this is what's happened in the art quilt movement, is that it was all commercial fabrics originally because that's what existed. And then people began to realize that they could die, and so Nancy Crow was a great example of someone who eventually bought every single, single color Prochem owned and dyed all her fabric and would no longer use commercial fabrics. And then people started realizing that they could actually print imagery that was directly related to what they cared about, and then they used that fabric for their quilts. And that gave it a conceptual edge that it had never had before because it meant that you could imbue the surface of the fabric with your your own ideas and with elements and design design images that were related to what you what you cared about. And so I think that the, that the, the the natural progression of the creative process is to eventually want to take hold of every single part of it. Because let's face it, if you're in charge of every single part of it from the from the inception, you're the one who chooses the colors, you're the one who's good at dyeing and you can actually 
do those colors, and then you have images that you want to use or elements that mean something to you, when you finish that piece, it is entirely your vision. And I don't think there's anything better than that. Hmm. Um, I just returned from Paducah recently. I'm not quite sure when this episode's going to get posted, but as we're recording it, I've only been home for two days. And one of the things I was struck by is my friend and I were looking at various quilts, some of them that presented as kind of a classic traditional quilt. You'd, you'd walk up close to it and you'd realize, wait a minute, they used a lot of surface des design techniques on this. You know, they would ink in various places or, or paint mm -hmm. in various places. So mm -hmm. I think there is much more blending in mm -hmm. a lot of ways than what used to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And I think the fact that I, I, I go, you know, I'm, I'm not the only person whose focus is surface design who is invited to go, for instance, to Art Quilt Tahoe every year and to go to Quilting by the Lake every other year and to go to these conferences that were primarily started for, for quilt makers. And so there is a wonderful blending. And what I like best is that there, there's an acceptance that didn't used to be there. There's an acceptance that, that this is an, is one more way to work. You know, one of the I'm not really so much a quilt maker anymore, but one of the very first quilts I ever made was hand painted and dyed and had some photocopy transfer, and it was this uh, it was a, a Mother Mary kind of a figure because I was struggling with motherhood, and that's how I was exploring the tension of being a single mother. And one of the things I did was to burn the edges all the way around as the finishing. And I entered it in a show in Little Victoria, Texas, south of San Antonio here. And, you know, in my mind, this was very avant-garde and an award winner. It never occurred to me people wouldn't understand it. Hmm. I was sure I would win an award. And I got this phone call from the director of the festival. She left her message on my answering machine. She said, oh, please call us back. Something terrible's happened to your quilt. I thought, oh, my God, what could it be? And I called her, and she said, I, I just don't even know how to explain this to you, but your quilt arrived and the, the edges have been burned. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, I did that on purpose. <laughs> and I started off on this rift, you know, oh, it's about motherhood and the pain and, you know, the self-doubt and blah, blah, blah. And I lost her. I totally lost her. And she said, and, and, you know, I trailed off, not feeling so sure of myself at all. And she said, well, we're still going to hang it. <laughs> It's okay. We're still going to hang it. Like, she could hardly wait to get off the phone because it was too crazy. But there are plenty of people who take liberties now. At, and I think that's a really great thing because that means that you've transcended thinking of it as a textile object. And let's, you know, in, in, in the, the era when that precedes my era, grandmothers and grandmothers before those grandmothers, Never would you think of hurting anything that was a textile. We were constantly darning it and mending it and trying to preserve it and figuring out how to reuse it. So for anyone to slash fabric, as some people do, or burn fabric, as many people do, that, that goes so counter to what, what our experience of textiles has been that it's, it, it's scary, but it's also phenomenally great because it means that it is now actually an art form, and we are willing to look at it in that way instead of thinking of it as something that we have to be really careful. I mean, but, you know, I still hear about the quilt police. Mm -hmm. People look around like the quilt police are in the room, and that doesn't mean there's anything, there isn't anything wrong with wanting stitches to be a certain number per inch or with wanting to do a, a knockout job with the traditional quilt, but there is room in, in this arena 
for these other very non-traditional ways of approaching the surface. Hmm. Okay, I don't think this is really switching gears because for me this is all kind of interconnected, but um, here's a question I rarely get to ask in an interview with uh, sure. around quilting is talk to me about existentialism. <laughs> oh, you nut. <laughs> you, you have just a wonderful blog. Um, actually, you've got a couple of different blogs that I was exploring, and I, and I could have spent just hours and hours and hours going back through oh, um, nice very deep. But you and I had exchanged as we were, you know, trying to figure out a date we could um, talk about this. Mm-hmm. We had we had talked a little bit about both of our backgrounds with, you know, in ministry or mm-hmm. about to go into ministry near misses. Um, and and <laughs> our con- right. <laughs> Are, are the connections between spirituality and creativity that exist for both of us. Could, so, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that's actually my underlying reason for being on the planet and doing what I do because, I, you know, I've lived a life that has had a certain number of miscues. And we all have painful heartbreak and miscues, you know, and things we can't control and the committee, you know, the committee in your head is the, whose voice is it? Or whose voices are they? When I realized I had a committee in my head every time I worked, I, it was a breakthrough because once I realized they were in there, I could, I could confront them. But what it all comes down to is a line from one of Don Henley, who you know was with the Eagles, a line in one of the songs that, that he wrote is, you never see a hearse with a luggage rack. And the way that I've interpreted that, and the, the reason that I bring that up in almost every class I teach and in my blog is because we, we the, I want every, I, I want to help people realize that it's the process of the making that is the profound part. Getting a piece in a show or showing something to your family or creating a baby quilt that will, that some little kid will carry around until they're 18 when it's, when it's grungy and, and in, in shreds. Those are all very, very worthwhile endeavors. But the real value in my experience, is that the creative process allows us to know ourselves on a deeper level. I paid for a lot of therapy when I was in my late 20s and early 30s, and it was probably worth it. But when I went into the studio and I worked on issues of motherhood by using images that were about motherhood, and when I burned edges of things, and when I screwed up my courage to go into my classes and not act the perfect teacher role, allow myself to be seen, invite other people to share who they, who they were in the classroom setting in order to, to create a safe space, if you know what I mean. That's where the real power has come from. And I'm very, very proud of all of the people I've worked with. I've played a little role in some people's lives and a much bigger role in other people's lives. But the, the most significant 
role that I've played, the, the thing that, 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 that really rewards me the most is to watch people discover who they are and some sense of, of their own selves and to cultivate their own self-esteem because that's what it all comes down to. It's all about self-esteem. And if we can be in the studio and we can learn about ourselves, accept who we are, and keep showing up and doing what we do, it's, it's so powerfully great. And it ripples out into every other part of our lives. And so, yeah, it, it, it is, I, I care deeply about how we connect to spirit through our work. And I, I'm very, uh, very aware of how painful and fleeting and magical and terrible it all is. And so Existential Neighborhood might be a crazy name for a blog, and I think it must be because, you know, unless you're really tuned in, how are you ever going to figure out how to spell it to find me? <laughs> but it's there, and I just decided I would I'd just show who I was and, and hope it worked out. Hmm. Well, I will definitely be encouraging my listeners to be on all of your various websites and, and blogs, um, but to really kind of dig deep into that, because I do appreciate how much you share yourself, because that's that's where I do find those connections to say, yes, I've been there, I've felt that, mm -hmm. and here's how mm -hmm. I can maybe work it through. Mm -hmm. hmm. It's really important. It's really important, and we need models for that in the same way that we need models for other things, you know. Um, we hold all of that stuff in way way more than we should and it it has it, it it sort of builds up and we need we need some kind of a release for it and and there's nothing more releasing than just throwing some paint at, at some fabric and realizing it's only fabric or whipping out a blowtorch <laughs> well or that yeah absolutely <laughs> some problems yeah. just need a blowtorch <laughs> yeah or even a candle and a big old box of matches <laughs> So in the midst of your, your busy schedule and all of your teaching and all of these things that you do, how do you keep, how do you feed your creative soul? How do you keep your creative energies flowing? Well, I, I've tried to be as much of a, a realist as I can. When I started the studio project 15 months ago, it was pretty clear that I was not going to be getting much time in the studio and that I needed to recalculate and see the studio project itself as this huge 3D artwork. And it helped me for about 12 months to look at it that way. But the crazy thing that happened is that I, about, you know, 12 months, day five, I started thinking, i got to get in the studio. I've, and I'm fortunate I have a studio here behind my house. And I, when I'm on the road, I watch other people being creative in my classes. And there is some there's some um, uh, secondary satisfaction that I get from that. But I also come home with new ideas just from watching what other people have done. And so I got into the studio about uh, two months ago, and I started playing around. I'm, I'm putting uh, plaster on, on canvas in a very thin way, and then I'm stitching and dyeing and painting back into this plaster. So it's, it's very experimental. I have no idea whether it will go anywhere or whether it'll work or whether it's good, but I just needed some, something where my hands were engaged again. And I, I've realized at this stage that when I start, I start really craving that and missing it, 
and I and I start feeling kind of crazy that it's time to, to figure out at least something that I can do to get my hands back in it. And I think the, the key to making that work is not to have very high expectations and to realize Nancy Crow, who's a very well-known quilt maker and a, just a really wonderful person, one time said in a lecture that I heard that she never left the studio to go somewhere without leaving something undone. And then when she came back home, and she didn't know what to do because she felt disjointed from being on the road, which happens to me a lot. I come home, I walk in the studio, now I have something to do right away because of what I learned from her. So I can just pick up, even if it's just sewing a binding on something or cleaning up the studio a little bit, it's a way to settle back into what you were distanced from. And I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of power in that. Hmm. I like that idea. I would like to think that I'm intentionally leaving things undone <laughs> for yeah, me to come go. back to. Yeah, that'll work. Um, uh -huh. All right. I, I, this has been a longer conversation than I typically do, and I could keep talking for hours and hours and hours, but <laughs> I will respect your time. Um, I have one last question for you, sure. and this is a question I pose to um, this year. I'm, I'm posing this to everybody I'm interviewing because it's a question I posed to my listeners. Um, in every year of my podcast, I'm in year three, I have done what I call quilty resolutions. And I challenge people to come up with their resolutions for the year. And I, I usually discourage just a laundry list of, you know, here's all the quilts I want to get done. I tend mm -hmm. to focus more on what do you want to learn? What do you want to experience? Mm -hmm. Things like that. This year, I asked them to come up with a word that would guide them this year that would either be the word that they would keep in their head every time they sat down to their sewing machine or, you know, at their cutting table or got their hands on fabric, or would be a word that they would want to express through their quilt making. So if you had to come up with a word that would either guide you in this current time or would be one that you would want to most express through your work with um, textiles, what might that word be? Hmm. Am I allowed to have two? I suppose I can throw you an extra <laughs> one, sure. You can always edit out one of them <laughs> if you don't like it. Um, okay, I'll try and make it one. Well, one thing I'm thinking, okay, here's what I'm thinking. One thing I'm thinking is um, casting. And that might not be good enough as a word by itself, but one thing I've really been working on myself is casting off thing, casting off, maybe that's a better word, casting off, I, I no longer feel any responsibility for things I don't want to finish. I'm casting them off. Because I think I've been, as many people are, too eager to finish something when the lesson was already learned and there was no reason to finish it. Hmm. And I would be content leaving it at casting off and maybe that's also really in the forefront for me because I am moving. And since I'm moving one studio and consolidating into a smaller space, then for me, casting stuff off is a, a good plan. But the second word that I was struggling between casting off and boundaries, because I think I need to be very clear about, in my own mind, the boundaries that I maintain so that I protect the time that is important to me to stay in the studio. Hmm. 
you've got me thinking about what in my life might I need to cast off um, mm -hmm. because you can obviously interpret that in a lot of ways as mm -hmm. well as you know you'd referred earlier as to the committee in our heads yeah, and sure. I'm thinking you know what I need to get rid of some of those committee members so. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can just disengage politely <laughs> The Buddhists call it monkey mind. You just let the committee sit over on your shoulder and they can chatter away to each other and you're not listening. Right. Just keep going. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, like I said, oh, I could just keep talking. And I hope that at some point I do have a chance to um, take a class from you in person. I would love to come down to that studio. That might be a treat for myself um, sometime in the future. And I really appreciate that you took so much time to talk with me today and, and um, in extension to my listeners as well. Well, I'm delighted that you invited me, and I understand the whole editing process, and I'm glad we were able to have a free-form conversation. I hope it'll be useful. I think it will be. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sandy. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you again so much, Jane. I am, uh, you know, I'm still just pondering the things we talked about. I, I keep coming back to parts of this conversation and, and mulling it over. Um, this was a really deep one. And I, you know what, listeners, I really can't wait to hear what you think. Um, so please do leave your comments. I understand you might have to ponder a bit too, but you know, give us your first thought, knee-jerk reaction kinds of comments. And then a little bit later, you can always come back and after you've processed a little bit and leave another comment again. Um, because this was a longer conversation, I am um, not going to be doing any of my usual Creative Bites, Sandy Update, or even, sorry about this folks, listener feedback. We will catch up with that next time. Trust me, I am keeping all of your comments on file so that I can get back to them when life slows down just a little bit. Um, I leave town the morning after this goes live. I will be gone the rest of this week. I will be back next week. Um, I have got to have stuff done to be able to give a Sandy update in the next few weeks because I've got some quilt project deadlines coming up, things I have to get done before the end of July, so I've got to get cranking on that. But I will have more time to talk about that later, and hopefully it will be fodder for a future podcast. So please get those comments coming, and do give Jane Dunnewald some love. Check her out on Craftsy, follow her blog, take an in-person class. I'm still trying to figure out when I can fit one into my schedule. I am dying to do that. Um, I will post all the pertinent links in the show notes of this episode. You know, if you've been listening for a while, how you can contact me. If you've not been listening, if you're just joining us now, welcome. And here's how you can get in touch with me. You can email me at sandyquilts at gmail.com. Sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. You can follow my blog. You can follow me on Twitter, Pinterest, Goodreads, Flickr, um, Thread Bias, Craftsy, all sorts of other places. Uh, I am Sandy Quilts in all of those places. Sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. You can join the Quilting for the Rest of Us Flickr group. Please do love to see your pictures. You can also join the Big Tent Quiltcast Supergroup and then the Quilting for the Rest of Us subgroup. And you can, of course, do good with your dollars and join the Quilting for the Rest of Us Kiva team. And you will find links to all of that and more at www.quiltingfortherestofus.com. And until next time, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. Thank you.